Hello, my name is Charles Johnson, and this is the Alabama Entrepreneur Podcast. Alabama entrepreneurs telling their stories, giving us a better understanding of the small business experience. Sonny Bachelor, owner of Sonny Bachelor State Farm Insurance. Sonny's mission is to help people manage the risks of everyday life, recover from the unexpected, and realize their dreams. Get coverage you can trust. Whatever your needs are, State Farm has you covered. Visit SonnyBachelor.com for more information. Sonny, what has been a specific, extraordinary customer service experience that you have given as a local small business? Well, it's been several over the years, but I guess the one that stands out is a family transferred in here. Their luggage was still on a truck. They didn't have much money. They just had moved into this house. And I went by, they called me and I went by to, this is way back in the mid seventies, early eighties. They didn't have much money with them. So I went and bought some groceries for them and took it to them. And that lady has reminded me of that for the off and on for the last 35, 40 years. And that was kind of a fun thing to do. And there are other examples, but that one stands out because she reminded me about that every every few years when she'd come by the office there. And imagine what that meant to them coming to a new place, mm-hmm. not having their belongings, right. and then somebody who they don't know really at the time right. uh, does that for them. It really changes their whole perspective on people, doesn't it? It does. And plus they didn't know anything about Huntsville. They were shown an address by this agent, real estate agent, for the house they were renting at the time. And, you know, she was just very appreciative, you know. Sonny, where did you grow up and go to school? I'm from a, a small town called Reform, Alabama, which is 30 miles west of Tuscaloosa, Pickens County. And we were Class A state football champions my senior year. All right. And it was fun. We didn't allow that many points scored on us for some reason that year. We had a lot of good players. Our just guy on the team weighed 190 pounds, not 290, 190. <laughs> and I went to um, University of Alabama. Then I should have studied harder. So uh, then two years I went to Hawassa College, which is in Madisonville, Tennessee. And my uncle was the president there. It's a hosting conference. Methodist Associated Junior College. Great experience. And then I came back to Alabama and then came here in 1968. So you've been in Huntsville since 1968. Mm -hmm. How did you get into the insurance business? A friend of mine was married to this lady I knew and he had graduated from law school in Alabama and he came to Huntsville and they he hired on with State Farm as an adjuster because he wanted to get the experience on both the adjustment side and, and the legal side too. So he worked for them for three years and, and, and I'm, I'm a farm boy basically. We had cattle and raised, had baled hay and inoculated cows and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't want to be cooped up in a cube on the arsenal. I probably wasn't smart enough to be an engineer anyway, but I just didn't want to be cooped up. I'm an outdoorsman in and out. And so he said, they're hiring at Huntsville, so you need to get up here. I moved up here in late August and didn't even know anything. He introduced me to the manager 
and he interviewed four of us. We went through the process in November 1, from late August to November 1, we went through the process and we got hired November 1 of 68. And that was with State Farm? Mm -hmm. You went through kind of a process of whether or not you were going to be hired? Well, you had to take all these aptitude tests and all that kind of stuff. I just took a chance and, and moved up here. Okay. Back then in, in 68, like I said, I wasn't an engineer, I wasn't a doctor, so, but I was, I, I liked the business side of the thing, economics. I took transportation courses, one thing or another, and I said, well, I need to. I thought, well, I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't have any car payments or anything else, so I just took a chance and moved to Huntsville. And the slaughter buddy introduced me to the manager, and here we are. Do you remember who owned that agency at the time? You don't own agencies for State Farm. We are independent contractors. Okay. And so the company owns the files. And back then, there wasn't any experience. There wasn't any additional file, wasn't any files available. So basically, most of us started with no files at all. Started scratch, as they say. How did you progress to get your own agency? How long did it take? What does that look like through the years? Well, when we were hired, then I had my own agency, but I had to go through this training program. I had to produce so much business to stay on track because they had a guideline that you had to validate a contract like 20%, like we were making like $600 a month, okay? So the first three months, you had to validate a certain percentage and progress up to the last quarter of the second year, you had to validate it 100%. So you were either calling on people, knocking on doors, getting referred leads to right business. Then once you satisfied that requirement, then they gave you an independent contract. Actually, I was employed by State Farm for two years until we got through this training of this probationary period. And that's a different cycle. It's like a one year renewable and they, don't, they can stop if they need to. So after that, you got the independent contract and then your own commissions in, you weren't getting any money from them, just what commissions you made, but they wanted to be sure that you had written enough business to generate the income for you to live on. So when you're coming up here, how many of you again started at the same time? They hired four of us at the same time. Okay, and so y'all, did you see each other as competitors? Yes. You know, you would go out and right. you were trying to win mm -hmm. new clients. Mm -hmm. And did you have any tricks to trying to figure out how you were going to get people to sign up? We had some word tracks that we used to memorize. And what I did was I went by to visit two older agents in town. One of which was Tommy Lewis. The other was Albert Elmore. Both played ball Alabama. And I said, which are the best neighborhoods to go canvassing in? Because back in those days, you could knock on the door and people were not threatened like they are today. They weren't scared. They'd come to the door because, but I was in good neighborhoods. Blossom Wood, da, da, da. And then I just asked them if they knew when their policies would renew and would it be all right if I called them back. And I gave them a card and I wrote all the information down on a three by five card and put a little index box. And how old were you? 27. And, you know, a 27-year-old having some organization skills seems like that would be tough. How did you learn to be organized? They don't teach you in college what a 941 is and all this kind of stuff. They maybe give you the philosophy behind where to locate a business at the raw material side or at the market side or somewhere in between. But 
balancing checkbook. I mean, they do now do a better job of doing it, but back in those days, you didn't get much instructions on what's withholding 941, balancing checkbook, all that kind of stuff. You just learned it on your own and, and managing people. I think that's just a vision that people have naturally to from being a leader. A lot, of, a lot of agents have better vision than I do and some have less when it comes to managing people. That's a skill that I think you can develop it, but you got to basically have it to start with. When you got your own agency, mm -hmm. did you have to buy into it? No. You didn't have to buy into it. So basically not, you had... They're not for sale. They're not for sale. They're not for sale. No. So you have to keep a certain level of sales to keep that commitment with them? No, once I went through the two-year training program and I produced enough, like all agents back then, enough to validate your contract, once you got an independent contract, you were on your own then. They're gonna just pay you commissions on the business you write. Okay. Now, they encourage you to write all lines, which any company would, automobile, life, fire, health, and then later in life, we formed a bank, but we turned it over to U.S. Bank now, and I've had my security license. I don't have them anymore, too, because when they shut us down for a year and a half, I, at my age, I decided not to do that anymore. So how did you grow this business in the beginning versus how you would grow it today? I know you said you would go knocking on doors. It was different times. So what did it look like then, and what does it look like today with trying to grow your business? Well, back then, it was just kind of a basic thing. You know, you try to get leads and try to get information any way you could. Today, we've been around long enough now that when an agent retires, they can take an agent and split it up two or three ways, and they do it by the volume of premium that the agency generates. They're not going to give an entire agency to a new rookie agent, okay? They'll split it up a couple of different ways. And from that then you grow as preferred leads. A lot of the new agents are buying leads. There are several companies out there that sell you leads for homeowners or automobile, and they go that way, or just direct mail. I know some agents mails out probably 10,000 pieces a month. Direct mail, if you get a small percentage return, then we're business that way. And when you buy leads, where, where do they buy the leads from? Why? Why buy leads? Uh, are these people that are doing market research and they know that people are looking mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. insurance? Think about it now. And not only that, but the younger agents, and we all do to a certain extent, you want to be high on the uh, pecking order when it comes to people doing searches on Google. So like you put in for automobile insurance, do a search for that. You would hope that you your name in, would be closer to the top because statistically, statistics have proven that not many people go to page two. It's going to be page one or move on. Does that make sense when you're doing search? Yes. And so that's, that's the way it's done today. You just call a lot of people. You buy, you buy leads. Uh, and when people, if they're shopping and you can buy this service from Google, it keeps you up at the top. And when they do a search, your name may pop up on a map and they click that and they call your office. And then you follow up right away and then if it doesn't work then you still you pinned it and followed up in say two weeks or a month or something like that and then it may be up to six months you never know because this the generation now the younger generation now is more price conscious 
until you create a relationship with them. Then they become to appreciate the experience of doing business with you versus, you know, Sunday's $50 more than another agent or less than they'll move you. Do you market your business or does State Farm handle that for you? How does that work? We have gone through over the years from print media, radio, TV, live ads, or recorded ads, or still pictures, flashing on their news, et cetera, et cetera. We've, we've been through all that individually. and But now, it seems to be more effective to spend all the money on national advertising. If you'll notice that we have on baseball, football, basketball, NBA, down to college. If you look at the goalposts, you'll see a State Farm sticker on there. And that has been more effective. Then, of course, we got Aaron Rodgers and we got Kansas City quarterback doing these ads. Do you have to pay a percentage to them for running those ads, or is that something that they just do? They just do. Because, if, you know, if it attracts enough attention, there's 19,000 of us countrywide. So if we write the business, whether it's here or some other city, it's still State Farm business being insured by them. And so they're getting benefits from it mm -hmm. and... Okay, and that sounds like a win-win. No, it is. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a franchise. What did you call it? We're an independent contractor. We're a small business. So you're an independent contractor mm -hmm. licensed mm -hmm. to sell State Farm. Correct. Can you tell us what it's like from the time you reach out to a client or a client reaches out to you, how you sign them up, all the way to the day that they need you to pay out a claim? We'll just start from the customer we're doing business with them, regardless of the source, or whether it's be a referred lead, or they answered a phone call because somebody gave me, or whatever. Then we now don't require signatures, except on life contracts, and pretty much that's about it, or financial services like bank. We, we can do bank products through U.S. Bank. We had our own bank, State Farm Bank, but then our forte is cars, homes, life insurance. So we've diversified and let U.S. Bank take care over our that business, and we've diversified the securities business, and it can be BlackRock or whoever there. But anyway, we sign them up, and we st I stay in touch. I mail out birthday cards all the time. I mail out uh, Thanksgiving cards or holiday cards and return labels and stuff. I do that all the time because it's almost impossible to visit every person and, and personally all the time. So if they have a claim, I've always encouraged my customers to call me, call my office first. And I want them to do that so we can have an understanding of what their issue is, whether it be a fire claim on a home, roof, hailstorm, been bothered a wreck, whatever. I want them to call us first and then we can direct them to the claims department. We have a, a initial loss report line that we get the customer on the line, put them on hold, dial up this loss report, and then we give them the information on the customer, and then we let the customer tell them in their own words about the accident or if it's a hailstorm or whatever there, roof damage, whatever. Then if it's if you get the sense that it's a, a claim that's not going to be so expensive I prefer that they get an estimate from a qualified contractor so we will know what we're talking about from a damage standpoint. If it's a small claim, I can handle it up to $10,000.
if it's excess of that, then of course certain type of claims we're not allowed to handle, you know, liability claims, roof claims, stuff like that. But repairs and stuff like small water damage or grease fire, if it's small, we can handle those claims. But then that's, that's the way we do it. And then we do a follow-up. That depends on how severe the claim is. If it's a small thing or automobile claim, you really don't have to follow up a whole lot there because uh, it's you get the car fixed at a shop and move on down the road. But I follow up on homeowner claims, stuff like that, because I want to know how things are going and how the contractor they've selected is performing. The same thing with roof claims, stuff like that. You send out someone that takes a look at the damage. Right. We give, uh, I don't own any construction companies, okay? None. So we give them two or three names and say, call these people because they, they have a good reputation. And the payout is, is based on how much damage assessed by this professional contractor. Because we have adjusters that are trained and they will know if they're in line or not. Now you gotta watch some of these guys, you know, they, you, we, we won't pay out a claim if he just says, I'll repair your house for $10,000. We need details down to square footage of the room, ceiling height, material, everything. We need to know about it, because that's how, if you, were, if you were having this room worked on, you want to know how many square feet of wall you have, ceiling, floor, and everything else, before you decide to go ahead and fix it and send it to the bill. That's, that's not, that doesn't make sense, you know? Right, right. If these claims are over $10,000, then how does that get worked out? Well, we will know that if, if it's going to be less than 10, uh, when we determine it's less than 10, I handle the claim and submit it. If it's, and we feel like it's one that I can't handle, then that's when we do the initial loss report and it will be assigned to an adjuster there. And then they follow up with the customer. Okay. Right. And this sounds a, a little tricky. I'm trying to just figure out. So is, is there like whenever someone is paid from a claim is there like is there like a big pot that state farm has that it comes out of that pot or does it come out of your pot it comes out of their pot it comes out we have reserves okay every state is in is regulated by the insurance department of that state you must have reserves sufficient to pay normal everyday claims i'm talking about grease fires water damage hail, stuff like that. And you must have the same amount of reserves for catastrophic claims. Like 2011 came through here, April right. 27, 2011. Here, Tuscaloosa, Pleasant Grove, and the Birmingham area. We probably spent, you know, two or three billion dollars in this state. Yeah. So, here's the, the key is, we have excellent reserves. And if you don't you don't want the state running your insurance company. That is not a good plan. So we have always strived. We have the best, highest financial rating that you can achieve. How do you handle a client that thinks that the payout is unfair? What I'd always do, depending on what type of claim it is, I'm gonna use the automobile as an example. <clears throat> I try to determine from the adjuster has all the details been covered and his analysis of the claim. Or if the, if a, we have what we call a select service. And a lot of automobile repair shops are on the select service, so 
I would call them to be sure that they've covered all the all the details of the damaged part of that car. And on a house claim, then that's the reason we'd like to get more than one estimate to be sure that we're, I mean, that could be all over the board, but qualified contractors, the estimate won't vary that much if he's covering everything that's damaged. But if somebody's unhappy about it, I just try to make sure that all the, all everything is covered that was damaged. And some people you can't satisfy. That's just the facts, Charles. Right, and we all understand that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there are some people out there that just think that life is unfair. Right, that's true. So, now you have very strong communication skills. Everyone that knows you know that you are an expert communicator. So is this a skill that you have learned through time? Is this something that you were born with? How did you learn to communicate so well? Well, I don't, I don't think you could take a college course and learn that. My family's always told me that I just was easy person to talk to and I try to listen to what people are saying. And, and if you look in somebody in, the, in, in their eyes and listen to what they're saying, then you can learn more. And I, I, I think it's just a gift that I have that I've been able to communicate with people. Do you think that that is why you have been as successful as you have been? I do. That's one of the, one of the things I do. Because people uh, under duress, if you can make them feel comfortable and confident that you have their interest at heart. And I always use this example. A man's castle, I don't care if it's a thousand square foot house, if it's a 10,000 square foot house. It doesn't matter that person in the family. It's just as important to him as the guy that's got 10,000 square feet. Well, and you have always been very kind to me. You are always just a very humble person when it comes to dealing with whoever they are. It doesn't matter who they are. They're, they're a human being, and you treat them like that no matter where they come from. Why do you think you're that way? My background is my parents were school teachers and we didn't have a whole lot, but we never went hungry and we were happy because we had a garden and we grew on beef and killed beef four times a year. So, and I always felt like that I would have never been better than anybody else. I don't, I don't care what the walk of life is. I always felt like in my heart that if you think you're better than somebody else, then you got a problem and it's gonna bite you in the rear end one of these days. That's just not right in my opinion. Well, and I love the way you live your life, Sonny. You offer workers' compensation. We do, and I have it on my team. For those that are unfamiliar with work, workman's comp, can you explain that and also what the law is in Alabama for workman's comp for small businesses? Yes, I can. Workman's compensation, actually, they call it workman's comp in the insurance, but it's actually an act. And the law says that if you have less than five employees, you don't have to purchase it. But the law also says you're responsible. So I buy it, it's three of us. I buy it because I just think it's the right thing to do. And if, and you might go for years and years and never have, but what if something happened in your office and they 
broke a leg or something that took months and months to recover from, then you're gonna pay it out of your pocket or how you gonna manage that? So I have workman's comp. Workman's compensation, they, they developed how much they're gonna pay out. There is a minimum and there's a maximum. Typically what they do is take, multiply 52 weeks times your weekly salary and then average it out and there's a maximum by $983 a week down to minimums 270. So you fall within that. Whenever you put a claim out there, you know, over and over and over again, that impacts your rate. It does. Can you tell us about that? When does it start impacting your rate? And is that a forever rate change or can it be reduced again over so many uh, months yeah. or years. Are you talking about just a homeowner claim or automobile claim, something like that? Well, I'm just talking about right now workman's compensation. Workman's compensation. Well, workman's compensation, uh, I had a client one time that was using several subs that did not buy liabilities for themselves and they didn't have workman's comp. So he would let them run payroll, he run through his, through his business, which made his payroll greater and his cost was greater, and claims would be charged against him, the frequency and all the above there. And it reached a point there where we had to cancel him. So he wasn't mad when I explained to him how it worked. He said, I agree, Sonny. I need to clean up the people that I'm hiring to do this work or referring to them. They just be good old boys out here, no beat up van, whatever they had, and they didn't, they didn't manage the finances enough to buy a liability and work comp. So he said, guys, I'm sorry, but you can't go through my payroll anymore. My company says they won't allow that or whatever you want to tell them. And he got rid of some people that were, I mean, you just think about it, if it's a plumber or a carpet layer, then that's hard on knees and backs. Right. I, they'll take advantage of you, Charles. They'll get hired on and all of a sudden have a back problem. Here we go. Right. So he eliminated all that kind of stuff and started using people that were being responsible for themselves. And then we reinsured him a couple years later and it's been great ever since. And I think that's an important piece of information to know is that there is personal responsibility with trying to maintain a good work environment, good workforce. Yes. And the hiring process is a big key to the success of keeping your rates lower and to not having it canceled. So some people, I wouldn't call it luck, but some people are, are better at reducing their long-term costs with that than others, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Do you mentor anyone that's coming up in the ranks now that want to be an insurance agent or do you not do that? I don't do that now. Back in the early days, before what we had, we have a, a a program designed for that we call aspirant agents. Now, before we had that, I would have people come by by their manager's suggestion and hang out with us a couple of weeks just to see how the process went. Well, that that was pre two thousand, but now the process is such that they test all these people. And if they really want to become a state farm agent, they have to pass all these tests, life, health, fire, securities, all this stuff is required. And then they work for an agent and he's called an aspirant agent. Maybe work for him a year or so. And then when a vacancy becomes available or if an agent retires, 
or if in hustle for example look at the growth rate we're experiencing right now charles so <clears throat> as this population grows well you think about it, you got four thousand federal employees coming here you got four thousand in the Mazda Toyota situation. What do you think that projects to total and numbers of people going to be here? Right. And suppliers, especially on the automobile. So therefore you're going to see some new agents being hired without any agents retiring because when they run the numbers, it supports it. This is a kept income in this county. Western Limestone is best in the state. Yeah. We're going to be the largest city in the state just now, right away. What skills do you need to do what you do? Well, if you're a rookie agent, you better love working and you better learn how to communicate with people and how to... We have sophisticated software now that permits you to do just about anything, from texting to calling. You can set it up to remind you to... Uh, follow up with a letter or a card or call. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable now, the technology. You can take that phone and you can file a claim. You can make changes, transfer cars, look at your bank accounts. There's not much you can't do now with these apps. And they're secure. Now, you're pretty tech savvy. Do you keep up with all this new technology coming through all the time? I try to. It's hard though, right? It is. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy it. But when a new a new version comes out, you just have to play with it and use it till you learn it. Right. You go to conferences how many times a year? We used to have them several times, but since this pandemic, we only have, like, we have a national convention where they introduce new stuff once every four years. We have a meeting here meeting with the whole group about once a year called their planning <clears throat> and we have a couple other meetings during the year where our sales leader meets she has several meetings but we meet in smaller groups to take your older agents in my position I'm not going to be as aggressive as the younger guys because they have a small agency they got all kind of time in the world to go sell something go find somebody to talk to if you're a larger agent then you have service and claims and all these other things that must be managed so it's just depends on where you are in life you know are you still trying to grow your business i just you know I, that, that old philosophy is if i have uh, zero growth then i've not lost any business that year true right true so what i'm trying to do is just maintain what i have but as, as my agencies it becomes older and i have a lot of people that's 80s, 90s. So I have a few, I've had about 15 or so die this year from one reason or other, either COVID or just health issues or whatever. And I just, like I said, I try to either maintain or grow a little bit. And it's difficult to do. You got to work at it. I mean, it's just an everyday job, you know. Do you mind telling us your age? I'm 80. Do you plan on retiring? Not anytime soon. Do you think you will ever retire? I do not. And you won't retire because you love it, which says a lot about owning a small business. If you love it, you don't necessarily have to retire because right. you love doing it. Mm -hmm. And if you love doing it, then you'll be successful at mm -hmm. it. I would not be one that would be very successful 
and being alone and being silent and nothing noise, it doesn't bother me. But for the long haul, it wouldn't be good for me because I've enjoyed for 52 years talking to some of my customers off and on every week. And now, because the, I, I try to pick out the old ones, just call them up and see how they're doing, especially with this COVID situation. I'd call them up and say how they're doing, and some of them have struggled with it. Some of them been in the hospital, and some of them skated by, but they hadn't even hardly been out of the house for months. They're getting out some now, but but when you get old folks, Charles, they just appreciate a phone call just to say hi. You don't have to ask them something or, or tell them anything other than just hey, do more. How you doing? Right, it goes a long way, right? Yeah, and so. it's not that you're wanting anything; mm -hmm. you're just checking on them. Concerned. Mm -hmm. Concerned, right? which is another important piece for all of us to know is compassion goes a long ways, mm -hmm. in more ways than one. What advice do you have for others wanting to get into the insurance business? It's a challenge. It's, it's, it's today, because of the competition, we've maintained number one ranking for, since I've been involved in homeowners and cars, period. But then there's other two companies right behind us, and maybe three that are spending truckloads of money on advertising to take that spot away. So we've been, we're encouraged and we encourage each other to maybe work a little harder to maintain that position out there. Plus growth of your business is always good. So it's, if you go get into business now, you need to be willing to work. You need to have good organizational skills and you need to have good vision on how to lead people how to read people and understand and put the strength of what that person possesses in the right job. Don't put them in a job that they don't want to do or not as skilled at it. You have some people who love life insurance. They just soon work it all the time. Call people, provide a service for them, you know, but everybody's gonna die, we're gonna pay taxes. That's that's a fact. You know, the worst thing that ever happened to you if somebody, some widow wife called and said, did you ever try to sell Johnny life insurance? Can you imagine how you feel about that? Right. Or why didn't you tell us about that, you know? And sometimes people don't know what you do or what you sell mm -hmm. unless you tell them. Exactly. What has been your strangest claim? I guess is a, a small thing, but years ago, this guy called me and said, so-and-so referred me to him, and he said, I just need renter's insurance. I said, okay. And this is before we did extensive research on background. This is probably mid-70s. And then it hadn't been enforced, but maybe a month. He called up and said he would need to file a claim, so somebody broke in the house, and it was a theft, something like that. So I said, okay. I said, well, get all your stuff together. Let's figure out how much you got there and what's what's missing and da-da-da-da, make a list. And I, was, I wasn't angry at anything. I would just tell him we need some facts, you know. And then, then a few days later, he called me back and said, Sonny, he just he wasn't going to file that claim he didn't really have a loss. I said, okay. I was surprised that he did that. You know, That was kind of strange to me. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure that you get a lot of things that you kind of scratch your head over. Yeah. <laughs> but you try to figure it out before it happens, but sometimes it's difficult to do. What do you think about entrepreneurship in Huntsville, Alabama, just in general? Well, I... I think being in Huntsville, Alabama is, offers the greatest opportunity in any business right now if it's managed properly. Not just insurance business, tires, hair, 
males. If we can get the products, I mean, ours is intangible, so we can create an intangible product, put it in paper, put it in file, it's there. You may have more problems. If you had to have a bunch of more chairs or products and stuff like that, it might be slow getting here. But I just think this area offers opportunities for heating and air guys from those from that all the way up to engineers. I mean, we, we do you know how many cars are registered for tags in this county? 700,000. 700,000? Yes. Cars? Yes. Okay. Now, you think about that. If you spread that over how many households, that's a lot of cars. Right, that's a lot of cars. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that something? Yeah. And it's growing with leaps and bounds. Yeah. Wow. Weekly. All right. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to this interview? I just think that Madison County, Limestone County is the best place in the state to live right now. I mean, overall, overall you've got not only housing market is growing, but the things for people to do. You got the arts, you got the, I know we spent a lot of money on sports. You think about John Hunt Park. I've been, I'm on the sports commission board and we're spending so much money to give these people something to do besides watch TV and work. And that John Hunt Park, man, that is really something. Yes. It is, it's, it is really amazing watching that unfold. Well, if you go back and think about it over the past years, between the Better Business Bureau and the Chamber and the growth of the city and the infrastructure, it's, these companies don't ask you, what are you gonna do for me? They wanna know, what do you, do you have available now? And if you tell them we have adequate water, go down the list of utilities, fire protection, police protection water, schools, then they will come here. But if you say, I'm gonna do that, it's gonna be done next year, it's too, you're too late. It's, it's, they're moving on. And you'll have to give, I don't know, battle over the years. He's done a good job. I think people, most people, whether you like him or not, he's done a good job. And they've, they've uh, the Shelby's helped, helped this arsenal out here. Right. And it's just, a, it, I mean, there's no better place to live in this state than where we are right now. Yeah. I, I, I find myself very fortunate. I know you do. And most people, I think, that are here, like you said, people mm -hmm. move here and they never leave. Mm -hmm. So it says a lot. All right. Well, there you have it. Sonny Bachelor, owner of Sonny Bachelor State Farm, another great Alabama entrepreneur. And Sonny, I just, I love you so much from the bottom of my heart. And I just appreciate you taking the time to do this. So thank you. You're more than welcome. I'm glad to do it, Charles. If you want to enhance your experiences throughout the great state of Alabama, I urge you to seek out locally owned small businesses. They will certainly increase your happiness. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.